podcasting from Chico, California, tucked in between some of Northern California's best freshwater fisheries. This is the Barbless Podcast, a podcast about NorCal fly fishing, guiding, fisheries management, and sustainability. If you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also check out http colon slash slash podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at barbless.co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash barbless.co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on. Hey, welcome everybody to another episode of the Barbless Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Hanna. I'm here with Chad. Chad, have you been, uh, you been fishing at all lately, man? Yeah, I uh, went to Paradise Lake with um, some of the, the uh, Meat Market Flies crew. Oh, nice. Yeah, had Mason on the boat, got to roam around the lake all day. Got a, My back was kind of fried the next day. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm used to you rowing me, not rowing other people. It's uh, about um, time. Yeah. Uh, no, it was, it, was, uh, it was pretty tough, but we had a good time. And Mason's like, you know, he's like 10 or 11 and can cast better than me. <laughs> which is very humbling, but really cool to see at the same time. And he's a, he's a product of Cast Hope also very cool which is cool very cool i got a really quick story about my uh stealth craft okay yeah go yeah. for it it's a it's a good uh customer service story i guess i just gave away the punchline but um so i i have a a, a frameless pontoon boat it's a stealth craft osg pro outcast right? outcast yeah. yeah did i say stealth craft outcast outcast yeah anyway um they so i had a failure on the boat on the on the foot strap and i sent it back they they kind of they they repaired it. I got it back, but the repair was bad. So I sent a video of it. Called him today, and he got the video. And they're like, re- they dropped a whole new one in the in the mail today, nice. same day, like within minutes after getting off the phone. So awesome. that's great customer service. And my litmus test for brands <laughs> is a good brand is always customer service and how they yeah. deal with it. So I want to just give props to them before we even start this nice. this uh, podcast. Very cool. So we're gonna go do some floats. Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. <laughs> all right. These our guests are probably like, all right, what are we gonna, what are we gonna talk? Like, here? Hey, <laughs> okay. We uh we have some pretty cool guests today that um ha- are part of a big project in the Feather River Basin, um, a fish assessment project. Um, and I say big, we're talking about hundreds of miles of river and three point two million acre feet of water that they had to uh, assess through. So um, I'm gonna let them introduce themselves, and uh, we want to hear we want to hear about this. Um, big project. I think it's pretty cool. So we have uh, Vincent Rogers and, and Cindy Noble. Welcome. To the hey, show. thank you. Thank you. Yeah, we're here on behalf of our local chapter, Feather River Trout Unlimited. And we really appreciate the invitation. How much fun is this? Yeah, you know? right. <laughs> so um, this this is such an amazing project. It's, it's turned out to be, um, as in all things, just as in the same thing, like if you fix the bathroom, it's like it cost way more and took a lot longer than we thought. <laughs> but we're still in there. We're still doing it. We're still paying. And it's almost finished. Awesome. So... 
the idea, I think um, when we talked about this this project in the very beginning, the idea sort of was basically the blending of um, what was happening in the Upper Feather River, which was the effort of the Integrated Regional Water Management Plan. And so that was the whole, it's a state-born uh, project that basically told regions to figure out what you guys want to do and how you're going to do it and who's going to be in charge of it. So Trout Unlimited was asked to come up with basically the fisheries part mm-hmm. of, the, of the whole plan process mm-hmm. and through again a couple of the most amazing guys ever um ken roby who's a retired fisheries biologist off the lassen forest and then uh, mike casso who's a self-taught biologist um we came up with this whole idea of doing an assessment region-wide assessment and um what i always say maybe um vincent would agree that um i think this is probably a project that maybe ken would have loved to have done during his career with the forest service but couldn't get it done. Wow. So here's to you doing it. <laughs> Vincent, tell us a little bit about yourself. You work for uh, Sierra Institute? Yeah. So, well, currently I work for Feather River Land Trust as a land steward. But okay. for the past year and a half uh, or the year and a half prior, I worked for Sierra Institute for Community and Environment. And I moonlight still. I'm down here today talking about uh, the work I did and, you know, in this partnership with TU. Sierra Institute, uh, part of this kind of like, uh, culmination of things that led to this project is that Sierra Institute launched this program to bring young professionals to rural Sierra Nevada communities to address a capacity building need. Very cool. They do a community, that's community capacity building is their focus. And a lot of it has to do with, you know, forest, working forests and, and, and timber utilization. Okay. Uh, so the other fellows worked on biomass and, and actually, uh, burn. and yeah, and burn projects. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, of course, uh, you know, so Ken actually serves in the leadership of both the TU chapter and the Sierra Institute board. And, and so he kind of saw this, um, this opportunity with the Sierra Fellows program to say like, Hey, maybe we can get this assessment done. Um, and then, so he went to some, uh, friends and colleagues in the forest service. Um, and, and they kind of hatched this plan to have TU, uh, to have Sierra Institute do the administration and then have TU be kind of the lead in developing this fisheries, uh, assessment and strategy for the upper feather river basin. Uh, you Very know, so cool. Everything that drains into Lake Orville. So it's a collaboration between the federal forest service, Sierra Institute and trout unlimited. Yeah. Those are the primary, uh, the primary partners. Uh, we've, all, uh, we've also, uh, Worked with Washington Washington State University, um, Sierra Nevada Brewery gave us some money. New Belgium Brewery gave us some money. Very cool. Bella Vista Foundation. Uh, I'm going to leave somebody out. I'm sure, but because uh, it's it's hard to keep you know keep track of all everybody that uh, I should acknowledge. Um, so yeah, there's a lot. Of, you know, so many people gave. Uh, gave, supported us um, with either time or money. We actually engaged a lot of volunteers. Um, and some of our, sam- some of the sampling that we did. Um, and, you know, one of the things was that w- we wanted to make sure that there was community support, um, because we felt like that's, um, you know, if certainly for the, er- the, er- the integrated regional water management planning, the whole thing is, is to get the region, you know, the communities in those region together to see, you know, to see what was important for water resources. Um, and then kind of the other thing that brought about, uh, there's, you know, there's a momentum behind the need to do this assessment. And one of those things is, um, basically, uh, 
one, you know, the Trout Unlimited released the the state of the Trout Report, which was you know kind of a seminal document, and and we didn't, you know, it's not it's not it's not like the Feather River figure figured in that too much, you know. Um, the other thing is really just the the declining fishery quality in the basin for the last however many decades since you know timber extraction and hydroelectric development uh, and later major water resource development highways and so railroads. TU already did a study that where they found <coughs> that the trout populations were declining well so the state of the trout was the TU national kind of taking a you know making a snapshot of where um, key trout species were at for the entire nation. Gotcha. And so like, w- you know, that's kind of just kind of one of those things that like, Oh, well maybe chapters should be, you know, really assessing what we're doing. Um, and you know, whether we're be, we're going to be effective in our mis- mission and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And if I can just jump in here, you know, one of the things that we've seen, especially in the upper feather is the situation where entities can actually like go out, apply for money and do kind of what we call sort of hopscotch work. And so they pour money into a particular area, do a restoration project, and then they walk away. And, and never go back and do any analyzing and, of the data that, well, things and that they've changed. Yeah. And, and there's no connectivity. And so right. one of the things that I think we really looked at you know, over the course of the whole project is like, you know, again, the idea was to come up with a chapter strategy about where we're going to go with our money. Once we finish this thing, Mm -hmm. it's going to be very, it will direct our chapter where we're going to spend our money because of the results, because what, and what we really um, think we're seeing is um, places where there is really, there's um, cold, clean waters. And so I think where we're leaning towards is really waters that are coming out of Lassen Park. Right, right. Yeah, that's what it is. So let's talk about the um, actual assessment and uh, the waters that it covered. Obviously, there's a ton of it, right? There's so many hundreds of miles of water up there between the North Fork, the Middle Fork, the South Fork, all the tributaries that run off of Lassen in those places. So, um, yeah, I want to understand what you, when you say the basin, what that entails in terms of all the different watersheds that add to that collective, I guess. Okay, so the basin, um, you know, it's everything that drains into Oroville. Uh, the headwaters of the North Fork drain off kind of the southeast face of Lassen and, and, you know, tributaries that come down there. There's the West Branch, you know, that starts, you know, on the backside of, uh, I guess like Butte, Butte Meadows or, yep. you know, the, you know, the canyon behind Paradise Sweet. Ridge. Mm-hmm. North Fork goes from Mount Lassen through Warner Valley into Lake Almanor all the way down the 70 and into Lake Almanor. That's and, one. That's yeah. just one. And then tributaries that, Go right. into that. Feed all right. of that. Yep. And then the Middle Fork, its headwaters are the Sierra Valley, which is, um, you know, over east of Portola. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's the largest, um, it's the largest wetland meadow complex in the Sierra Nevada. Uh, it itself is a huge basin, you know, much less and much less, you know, as part of this larger basin. Uh, and that drains, you know, down through the Highway 70 corridor, uh, you know, through towns like Portola, Blairsden, Gray Eagle, Quincy. Clio. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, it, it, right before you reach Quincy on 70, the Middle Fork veers off down into the wild and wild, scenic wild portion, and scenic, mm-hmm. yep. which is, you know, uh, you know, the people that worked on getting that designated, uh, that was a tremendous gift to us as fishermen. Um, if you go down there, it's, it's still, you know, it's tremendous country and it's, and it's still, you know, some of the best fishing in the state probably for wild trout. If that's your, 
if that's your uh if you like poison imperative. oak and, mis- and uh, <laughs> yeah. rattlesnakes exactly. and, and getting bumps yeah. and bumpy roads and, you know long long Chad, hours you, on bumpy you, roads you didn't realize yeah. that you just got a new best friend right Chad, <laughs> chad's gonna be hitting you up after the show and yeah and, man i'm on gps <laughs> and then and then the last uh you know and then the last uh branch is the south fork uh, which you don't hear much about you don't is um, that just because it runs too warm well, I, you know, that could be because it is, you know, it's, it's man, the, a lot of the flow is managed by an irrigation district or, mm-hmm. you know, I think South feather water and power now. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, the other thing is, is like, I think there's, it's a lot of private land, it's private timberland and, uh, you know, unforgiving roads probably and a lot of gated roads because they don't want people going in there and tearing up their roads. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I think there's an access thing and then. Um, in, in my research, uh, looking through all these historic fish records is, is that, you know, there's, that it can be really good. Mm. I have, I myself haven't had the chance to explore it yet, but. So what, and this might be a dumb question, I guess there is no such thing, but what flows, what has more water coming in the North fork or the middle fork? Do you know? Mm. If you, so for our listeners, if you call 530-534-2307, it gives you a hotline that basically tells you what the inflow is coming into the lake, um, outflow, war, uh, storage of the water of Lake um, mm-hmm. Oroville. Um, it's pretty neat. I love here calling that in and getting that data. You know, it's just, it's, it, yeah. it's kind of neat to hear, especially in like we're in March, right? We're just about to get a, what'd you call a, an a atmospheric, atmospheric river. river coming through. <laughs> <laughs> the pineapple express or whatever. Um, yeah, a lot of water and snowpack is going to be coming, which yeah. we really, really need. Um, but that's great. Uh, um, I've, I've just been curious. I don't really, I, don't I would, know which. um, I, you know, I haven't looked at stream gauge data for right. the basin and, and, you know, in a, a number right. of months, but I would venture to say that it's yeah. the North fork. That's why they, you know, that's why right. they, it's where all the those projects went in. Right. Right. And, and it makes sense. Um, what, and in, well, and some of the work that we did regarding for this project to look at, you know, climate uh, adaptation and making sure we're working in the right areas in the future. You know, Lassen catches a tremendous amount of moisture or precip mm-hmm. uh, and, and, you know, just the translate to runoff. But, you know, in terms of snowpack, it's really kind of it's the highest peak in the basin. Well, that was going to be my question is you have again, all these hundreds of miles of river and all this water that you have to go do this assessment on. How did you determine where you were going to start and what rivers did you, how did you pick those rivers and places? Well, my, my mentors, Ken and Mike, they, they thought they had already done some brainstorming and they had some key components identified that, you know, that they thought would um, kind of steer the assessment like we needed these were the questions that we needed to answer and those qu- questions were like we needed to know more about historic fish tr- distribution mm-hmm. and it and it, as comprehensive and as detailed as possible they also wanted to you know and then they also w- thought like well we and then we need to look at habitat condition so and how has it changed and what are key stressors or indicators if you will um that might affect how that historic distribute the historic distribution has changed you know over time um and then we needed 
a way to assess current distribution to compare to that historic distribution, that historic reference. So explain that distribution because some people might not understand so when what, I, you're, what you're referring to. When I say distribution, um, it's you know the the presence of uh, of a species geographically. So how many river miles is are the native fish occupying? You know, uh, are there barriers that have constrained them to where, you know, upstream of that barrier was previously fishless or, um, and has now been stocked or if the conditions have changed where, you know, so just to know how many stream miles are occupied and how much of the basin, you know, has, um, the species in concern and, and the, uh, lacking better knowledge about genetics and stuff. This project is really about wild rainbow trout populations. Hmm. We'd love to know more about the native genetics. Uh, and that's, you know, that's one of the, the questions that, you know, this thing opened because it, this, it was really kind of like a mechanism to open the key to Pandora's box yeah. is you think you're going to answer, if you answer one question, you're led to three others. <laughs> right. Um, when, when you talked about the, uh, the historical records, where, where, where were you finding that data, you know, on basically old fish surveys and stuff like that, where, where did you how, what was the methodology and where, you know, sources for that? So we went, I went to, um, you know, every forest service office, um, that, you know, the district offices, uh, and the supervisor's office of the Plumas national forest. And I dug in, you know, into basement files, <laughs> wow. looking at stream surveys, uh, uh so many people cdfw yeah. i was down in sacramento region two offices i was over in the lassenmodic district office of cdfw digging up their old fish files and stream survey files there's a there's a local nonprofit uh based out of quincy that um does you know environmental quality monitoring and and meadow restoration plumas corporation they they provided a lot of good data um Tahoe National Forest. Um, there's a corner of the basin that lies in Tahoe, and they've mm-hmm. done s- stream surveys. Um, and then I, you know, I also spent some time perusing the FERC websites. Uh, and and uh, the other one of the critical components for the community engagement aspect was that getting the I, anglers involved in yeah, some of that data. Yeah, I got the, well, I got a short list from my mentors. You know people they were friends with or, or knew had experience fishing and, mm-hmm. or, and having lived in the basin, you know, some of them as long as 50, 60 years have spent their whole, lived wow. their whole lives up there. And, you know, could tell you a good fish story. Yeah. <laughs> or, or tell you nothing. It's great. <laughs> right. it, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's great. I have some recordings, uh, that I, Very cool. that I, that I get, you know, I, I went through and transcribed them and, and kind of, cross-reference those with the historic uh survey records the official records and you know and and kind of started building up these these uh gis layers mapping the distribution wow um, that's got to be is that all public record the gis info uh it were that's our aim we uh one 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 of the goals of the project is to get that um disseminated cool um because that was one of the things is like we have all these managers up in this basin it's got tremendous fisheries um and people are out there working collecting data but it's not getting shared and it's and it, you know it's leading to a kind of a lack of coordination with with res- with regard to restoration efforts so that was one of the that was an impetus for the historic fish distribution is like we need somebody to go in there and gather all the fish data and try and make some sense of where fish were where fish are um so tell us what you're <laughs> 
What were your findings? <laughs> um, well, let, uh, let me get to that yeah. in a little bit. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just excited here about it. Yeah. <laughs> I know Chad is. Chad's like, oh, I want to know where those big browns are. <laughs> we, went through this, we went through the same process for assessing condition um, in the sense that we, we uh, convened a technical advisory panel mm-hmm. of a multi, an interdisciplinary multi-agency uh task group to help us kind of suss out what the what was affecting fishery decline or um quality in the basin and so we met you know periodically and and i would develop this the the approach a little bit and then consult with them Mm -hmm. and then the other thing we did is we had some community engagement meetings we tried to get community members to come out and hear about um hear about the assessment what we were putting together and to yeah to share us their ideas about where should TU and it's, and, you know, it's place you know, emphasize its collaborative efforts on, um, you know, which fishery should be, should we be working on? Um, the other, and then the other exciting component was that eDNA work. We, um, we got money from Sierra Nevada, uh, Patagonia world trout, and, and they, they sponsored, uh, us to, and, we got a lot of volunteer effort as well to, to sample the entire, not the entire basin, but as much of the basin as we possibly could using the, the techniques of, um, sampling for environmental DNA. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, it was, uh, or I said previously it was, um, it was commonly used water quality monitoring, uh, technique, usually for like biological constituents, your coliforms or other, you know, pathogenic. Uh, waterborne diseases. So whirling disease being yeah. an issue. And so we looked at, you know, we looked at the presence of, we were looking for, we, we sampled for eight species, uh, rainbow trout, the, the, on, the only native, you know, trout to the base, the upper feather river basin, mm-hmm. uh, rainbow trout of, uh, you know, the same lineage of as central Valley steelhead. Um, and then uh, we looked for brook trout and brown trout because we knew that despite uh, there are some strange efforts or there have been strange efforts by this by DFW to stock um, things like grayling and golden trout in the basin. It's because right. they, you know, they're, they're catfish. Shipping, they're shipping golden trout. Yeah, yeah. They're shipping golden trout all the way, you know, back east and or, and stuff like that. And yeah, certainly, uh, you know, problems with bucket biology and, and, and yes, uh, large you know planting black bass in the reservoir f- to start reservoir fishery D- define bucket biology i think i know what you mean but just for it's one um a gracious and and considerate and generous individual takes upon themselves <laughs> to bring uh, a non-native species to a body of water with the intent <laughs> of establishing it <laughs> uh, happens all the time and so we sampled uh, and then yeah one one of the big things is we we wanted to know where the fish pathogens were the these two major pathogens that affect trout fisheries uh ceratonova shasta which is kind of is is actually native to northern california and so, and some of the anadromous rivers and then uh the agent of whirling disease and whirling disease was been as was introduced by uh stocking practices and it is you know and it um, it's believed it, that it or originated in hatcheries in Europe, um, hmm. and then was and, and now is found. You can pretty much find it in anybody, almost any body of water, well, right? Or, and then at certain levels, it's and, and certain times a year you're going to find it at certain higher levels, right? Yeah. How, how do these things manifest? Is it the is it at the genome level, or is it? Can you actually see it? 
Uh, kind of layman pick uh, it off of whirling disease is a worm, right? Isn't well, it? Well, it's uh, it, the pathogen. Um, the whirling disease has kind of a um, a complex life cycle, life history strategy. It, it uses two intermediate hosts. Um, so the worm, a tube effects worm of mm-hmm. a certain of a certain um, species, and actually a certain um, I think a certain genotype within you know wow. only. Um, of like a subspecies i wouldn't i don't know if it's a subspecies but it's um only a certain worm will carry it and then and then it goes through a spore state and then it infects fish and then as the fish um uh, as the fish expire and and sink back to the bottom of the river the spores re-enter the soil um Whoa. the sediment layer and and in turn reinfect the worms and so uh though but those uh native fish kind of Serratonova being um, native to California, there's some resistance built up. There's less. There's evidence, new research that suggests that fish fisheries, Western native fisheries, are building resistance to whirling disease. But it's you know it's going to be a process. They've they've been recovering rivers um, back east, you know, in Wyoming and Montana and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is usually more, more and cooler water. Right. Uh, you know, so- making. But uh, go ahead. What's it do? Does it kill them or? Yeah. So um, it what it, it's it, named it, after that because you see actually fish yeah, whirling inf- around in the in the river bodies of water depending on it where infects you're at. the young fish and it and it affects their their um, skeletal development. There's so, a and then, deformation definitely of the body. Yeah, mm-hmm. in the spine, um, and you, you see it manif- There's different traits you can look for. Uh, you, their body will or their body will kind of blacken in certain areas, and you know they'll develop a crooked, you know, a crooked spine. And and the result of that is like if they can't swim straight, they can't evade predators, right. or they can't um, evade, you know, Chad. Yeah. <laughs> Well, <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a, it's a grave experience to come across, a, you know, this yeah. fish that's swimming haplessly in circles in an eddy and, and to know, right. like, oh, this fishery that I love is so, is impaired and because of this. Well, that's good to know, you know, um, is there somebody, is there like a hotline or something you can call when you see something like that? <laughs> <laughs> like what, what can an angler do if they see that? I think that, um, well, I think, you know, take a, you know, make an observation, take a photo and if you if you got like your cell phone can collect GP if you got a GPS use your GPS or if mm-hmm. you can you know uh, tag the geodata for your photo and then send it to send it to your regional fisheries biologist with DFW um, because like I said uh, you know there there are ways that we can minimize the impact of these um, so we, one of the things is we wanted to, we definitely wanted to sample for the eDNA of those two pathogens Mm -hmm. because they affect the fishery profoundly did we talk about what edna means before we go any further no not really i was gonna have i was just gonna ask him to describe that actually a little bit yeah it's really cool and uh if you haven't heard of it listen up so edna uh is an abbreviation for environmental dna so any given organism uh in the water will the key verb is slough you know so be it be it um genetic so it's just genetic materials suspended or tissues suspended in the water column mm-hmm. and and then using some of the kind of the the genotype technology um and these water and filtering with the water quality techniques we can um compare them to markers for um 
specific markers for the species once their geno like their genotype or their gene is completely sequenced. Hmm. Um, so in layman's terms, basically, if you have you have samples of a, a brown trout, a rainbow trout, and a brook trout on hand, their their DNA fingerprints are coming down the water. You sample those fingerprints and basically do a match with the book you have on hand. Sort of absence presence thing. Correct. And so again, like what we did was choose which components we were going to look at. So some aquatic invasives, Mm -hmm. some fish species. What else? You said eight. Yeah, we got brook trout, brown trout, rainbow trout. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned two because one's a potential valley steelhead. Um, Well, just, we just wanted to know, well, we didn't um, look for any, you know, we just looked for rainbow trout. Okay. Gotcha. Um, just simply because uh, that wasn't, you know, we right. just were trying it. to establish yeah. distribution. Yeah. What were the other so ones? The other three species were invasive mollusks, so zebra and quagga mussels, which mm-hmm. um, is that know, like New Zealand mud snail yeah. and N- New Zealand mud snail as well, right. okay. which cause problems from a you know can cause problems for like infrastructure right. you know those muscles can you know, clog up um hydroelectric infrastructure and stuff mm-hmm. but and then you know but from an ecosystem standpoint all three of those organisms have the potential to, to shut down the nutrient cycle in a river mm-hmm. and and then so they, they basically make they filter the water to where there's no more nutrients left for algae and thus bugs and thus fish and mm-hmm. it, and you, you know the they kind of like vacuums can can in the worst case scenario sterilize a wow. a, a, a waterway. Are um, there freshwater eels above the dam? Um, came across this in my historic fi- fish distribution stuff. There were records as uh, like into the mid '60s and and late '60s of brook lamprey, mm-hmm. which is um uh can be found up on like the north coast and and these are it's like a smaller species that I guess um has takes has a life history strategy where it's a stream resident mm. the the reality is is that and then you know then it see they cease to be appear in the survey record the mm. reality is that uh the anadromous lamprey right um has a really long lifespan and it, and and its juveniles will remain in the gravel for five or seven years or something like that. Right. And so those they survived the, after the dam was built after the and dam they were there for a meantime and then just mm-hmm. basically yeah. Yeah, became extinct. Yeah. And that was, we, you know, one of the things that I was tasked with looking at was to, to think about anadromy because one of the, you know, nutrient, uh, the nutrient deficit caused by the extirpation of anadromous fishes uh salmon steelhead and lamprey too um affect affect the the watershed in ways that we don't know like you if you eliminate um the those nutrients it hits your bug life hard right things like that i want to um get back to the edna really quick because i have another question about how sensitive it is so or you mean like meaning, accurate how yeah, accurate it is yeah because like in high water you, you know how are you going to get yeah. an accurate representation so of- yeah there's a couple questions like if if um just to keep it simple in my you know my mouse brain um a mile up there's a trout there's a rainbow trout you're a mile down and you're looking for that marker will you find it if assuming that biomass or whatever comes through the the area that you're sampling well um the it's got a there's tremendous capability surrounding this this uh technique but that it has it's not without limitations mm-hmm. um so in our samples 
all of them, you know, where we feel confident. We, I think we had one or two samples of 60 some sites that we were like, something went wrong here where we we didn't detect anything. So there may have been used a lot of bleach to keep things contaminated. Bleach is tends to be good at destroying DNA, right? So you, you bleach a lot of your equipment and then you rinse it and before you go to a new site. And so, um, all of our samples, you know, we, we feel like they're, they're valid, but there are limitations like, yeah, is, um, you know, you're going to have a stronger signal if, um, you have, uh, some rainbow trout spawning 20 feet, uh, up, upstream of you than if those fish are spawning, um, in some remote tributary or not spawning at all. It's or not spawning during at the all. summer months or whenever. It's, okay. And yeah. it, and it's really just to say it's a one or a zero. Yes or no. That there's that species in there. It doesn't talk about density, population density or anything like That's that. That's correct. correct. For, okay. um, absence presence. Okay. Absent first for, for this cool, fish though. species. That's super cool. Now, well, and we, and I, I think, you know, imagine. one of the things we kind of talked about in the very beginning was like, you know, look at the map and mm-hmm. then like, okay, how are we going to do this? And I, I think what I remember was, I mean, we had a million, we, I mean, our eyes were so big. We had a million sites that we thought we <laughs> right. would go to. It's like, okay, so Vincent, get going, get yeah. going, you know, like, <laughs> get on it. And then, you know, it didn't take too long to realize like, I guess we're not going to get to all those places. So then it was like, okay, pull all that back in, take a look. And, you know, again, we have like Dave, or, you know. Frenchman's, we have like Davis, we have Almanor. I mean, so we did the the big places, then we, you know, just keep narrowing down, Come, get smaller, 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 smaller kind of thing. And I think the idea really was that what we would come up with this final piece, absence, presence for the species that we had listed. And then I think the idea is to go back. I mean, we're going to go back and do some confirmation. Correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's we will finish this first phase, but there's going to be a second phase. Of course, we're all laughing about that now. (laughs) And then in terms of the methodology, so if you're, you're, you're standing in the water, you take the sample, do you take multiple samples across the entire width of the river? Or is it just one spot or how does that work? Uh, You can do it at just one spot. Obviously um, whenever you're, when you're designing your sampling protocol, you want to think about habitat use. You want to think about life cycle, uh, you know, are the, is it is it a good time because they're spawning? Um, they use it for detecting amphibians. So they, you know, they they sam- when they're looking for amphibians, they sample frog habitat. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for a trout, you want you some you want um, one of the best places. Like for instance, is uh, the same place you might cast a wet fly is in is an eddy where there's foam because there's going to be genetic material. That was my next. My next thing is like the hydrology of where you take your samplings. Got to yeah. be uber critical. And now, while while you, while you can't say anything about population densities for trout, for instance, yeah. for the for the for the pathogens, you're actually filtering out spores. And so, depending on what time of year you look at look at um, where you're sampling for those for those pathogens, mm-hmm. you can look at kind of like what the spore load is. You know, so if there's a lot of spores in the water, you know that there's a lot of good worm habitat or you know or the condition or there's warm water and the conditions are good for the pathogens to proliferate Mm. and so that you know that's a concern and so you can basically pick up invasive species also i assume yeah so you've got the marker for it yeah if you have the marker you can you can find it and we and even mud snails all that stuff yeah um we we had a laundry list of uh species that we were we wanted to 
and you know, like Cindy said, we had a bunch of sites, hundreds of sites that we we were interested oh, in. So much funding that you can make it happen. Yeah, and a laundry list of species, and there's only so, you know mm-hmm. you get some money, and and it's a great project, but there's still limitations. That being said, it's super cost effective for this large scale, right, right. rapid uh, sampling. We did you know sixty some sites, <laughs> you know fifty nine site, stream sites, and then some reservoirs, um, you know, in the course of a month. With some vol- with some help from you know college students and vol- and volunteers, and um, what we found is you know we had established this historic reference from the survey records, mm-hmm. and when I did that, I found that there's a record for rainbow trout in every uh, unit that we looked at. Mm-hmm. We we divided the um, the sub the wa- the watershed the whole basin into sub watersheds, which is a USGS delineation. So they they um, with more, you know, some of them are a little bit arbitrary, but they, they logically divided up, um, any given basin in the United States up, uh, into smaller units so they could really do flow monitoring or mm-hmm. like flow projections. Um, but so we use it as a, it's kind of a standard operate, a prior, a standard unit for reporting unit for these, this kind of work. Um, the U.S. Forest Service uses the same scale to uh to assess watershed condition by their methods um and and so uh basically i found rainbow trout in every unit and then we're thinking like oh okay like well that's good you know like there through some means there's there were fish uh in a lot of places and we were hoping that edna would allow us to see where they were extirpated where conditions have declined so much that there might not be a population there. Right. Well, what we found is that there's really good agreement with the eDNA results and the, and the historic survey record in that in most, I think in all but one of our uh, eDNA sample sites, we found rainbow trout. So this is pers- after a 10 year, like one of our worst droughts that we've ever experienced, Yeah, by the way. And yeah. And, um, interesting. Well, it was just prior to one of the wettest years. So we'll, ha- you know, we, the, it's, that right. opens up its own questions, but right. yeah, after one of the most severe droughts, yeah. the, the severe drought. Well, it, it, you know, one of my takeaways from this segment is that, you know, there's a scientific way to figure out how far the striper are moving up the Sacramento river. You know, just like sample every half mile and just step up until there's no more right. striper marker coming I down. Think, I think a guide would tell you that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I got. But you're one. right. You're right. I got one in the low flow of the feather. You know, did last you? fall? Then I've never seen him up there. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, and then so what did you? What were what did surprise you aside from that? After you know, in these conditions. Well, we had similarly good agreement for brook trout and brown trout. So thus mm-hmm. far. Um, those populate brook trout and brown trout are also persisting. So brook trout are, they need a lot more colder water. Usually you find those in high meadow areas. Like yeah. 6,500 and up, right? Right. Something like that. Yeah. And brown trout are brown a little, trout are more extreme. They can take on can, extreme conditions yeah. and Bath be in a lot of different. Like, yep. They're like catfish. Um, yeah. And then, but you, you've, you're saying too, that, that even in those warmer conditions where you usually shouldn't see a rainbow, there were, there were rainbow trout in yeah. there. Mm-hmm. It was, so that was a pleasant, you know, so they that, just build a, adaptations. In, well, guess, it makes so. sense. I mean, that's the, you know, when you look at a steelhead, yeah. you know, yeah, they would have, yeah. they would have boogied out of there, but 
you know, to become yeah. a steelhead, but they stayed. And Where you have the native genetics, you have the adaptation to the natural climate swings of mm-hmm. California's climate, you know, very, and the way that very if, cool. the way that occurs in the waterways. Are there any golden trout up here? In 2006, there was, uh, is the last, uh, well, according to, I don't know that anybody's caught one. In it's the Ishii of golden trout. <laughs> it's, it's in 2006 on river X, there was a golden <laughs> trout, uh, uh, drummed up by some sampling done by, uh, DFW uh, in in relation to some FERC relicensing, hmm. but we can talk about that uh, off air later. Yeah, off air. <laughs> Damn, some of the perks of having your own podcast, huh, Nick? Well, I think uh, I'd I love, mean, I'll, I'd love to get after him too. If you guys want to, we don't like naming names, but if you think about it, like you have all these places that are easy access between lakes and yeah. the main streams, right? Main rivers that are easy yeah. to get to, easy to fish. Those, I mean, those have big fish. They have really, really big fish. Mm-hmm. When you want to start bushwhacking and going off into the middle of nowhere, I, I mean, your likelihood of finding those big fish become less likely. There's probably a fish there that hasn't seen a person in like three years, right? Yeah. yeah. And you're there in the and middle of nowhere. There's I mean, probably that's the some, experience that you're going There's for. probably some high lakes within three hours of us that have golden trout in it, yeah. I would guess. Yeah. And and by all means, document it and send and, yeah. and send your records to my email. And I, I, I swear I'll, I'll <laughs> Never write with the <laughs> utmost uh, confidentiality. <laughs> um, but one of the, the, the main... Uh, thing that came from so in the end we we didn't achieve the objective of um, establishing uh, what how fish distribution had changed right in you know in the, in the last 40 50 sure. 60 years because the fish are uh, according to our sampling still in all the places that mm-hmm. we sampled mm-hmm. but what we did do with the eDNA sampling is establish an, a, a very important baseline and is that was the presence of the pathogens so we only our sampling only found the pathogens in previously recorded places previously recorded places um but we did have some issues where like recent documented pathogen presence we didn't detect so that tells us we need to revisit and and think more about life cycle timing so mm-hmm. sample when the time the path- of year yeah right. sample when the pathogens are going to be most prevalent right the other good thing is that we did not find mussels or uh or new zealand muslin and just for you guys listening to a great way to avoid transporting those different pathogens and bleach uh, yep bleach your boots you know a lot of uh uh, brands have gone away from felt which is one of the main contributors to transporting that to different waterways and um they're really not around as much anymore i'm gonna fish puta in two days and that's that's a and one that has a I'm, lot of yeah. And I'm gonna you know nuke them when I get home. Yep. Yeah. Nuke the boots. Yeah. Good call. Yeah. So for you just ED- have a whole garage full of waders. <laughs> yeah. Hooks yeah. for every he place d- he you does. Go. He yeah. does actually. I bet. Yeah, I've only got one pair of waders, but I have two pairs of boots. <laughs> yeah. So for the same Absence thing. With presence. The, yeah. Same thing with the DNA sampling. Everything we treat with ten or twenty percent solution. Yeah. Let's talk about that really quick. So. When you guys are in a known area with pathogen, what's your de- decontamination procedure? Well, in general, um, the ED- the DNA is it's pretty easy if your equipment is is properly decontaminated to avoid um, contaminating your sample, and that's don't get in the water. 
you wear gloves when you take when you're pulling the sample from the water column uh, and you and you basically don't allow anything that has the potential for contamination um, be it um, be it spe- you know DNA from a previous sample site right. or or you know excess or the bleach that you use while while you're actually in the field. Um, so use, even if you got it, even if you didn't even get in the water with any of that stuff, do you go and bleach that equipment? Yeah, it's it's kind of just a protocol. There, um, really, the you at one point in the sampling process, you you have some you have some forceps that you handle the actual filter on before yep. it goes into a sealed envelope. Right. Um, is and you 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 dri- dip those in bleach and then distilled water, and then and um, and then, you know, in general, uh, yeah, you, you don't, you try not to enter the water if you, if you don't have to. It, so if you, I get my, the root of my question was to hopefully give some anglers some insight into how to clean their stuff. So in the case when you have to go in the water and you've got boots and waders on, what, what's the procedure? Right, like there? what, like a percentage of bleach would you yeah, use in just, water yeah, to yeah, kill yeah. everything? I think you said it already, but. Depending, depending, it depends on what you're concerned about. Mm-hmm. If you're concerned about mollusks, you can you can freeze, freeze them, them and and brush them down and and rinse them, and you should and just trying to get any you're actual good. mollusks mollusks off there. But yeah, for these pathogens, um, you want it, you want to use some kind of solution and and yeah, like a ten percent bleach solution. Thing about using bleach is that it it will wear out your equipment, but you mm-hmm. know it's better to wear out five pairs of waders on a good fishery than to wear out, a, you know, a good a fishery. fishery. <laughs> so of all these places that you found these pathogens and is there going to be a plan? And you're probably going to talk about this to, um, basically put up signs that say this river is contaminated. Please use caution when that's well, what- it, it gives me an idea to actually add a pathogen alert to the app that we're building. Right. Right. You know, on the Great known idea. waterways. Right. Great idea. Yeah. So you yeah, get a little I was already thinking about my mind was yeah, spinning yeah. on that one. We'll noodle on that after. <laughs> so, yeah. So you, but you have all the pathogens documented. Is there like and a that, national database for that stuff that like correlates with say what the USGS say gauge stations are doing? Doubtful. You know, I'm not aware. I think doubtful. we might It's shocking. I, well, I don't want to not. I don't want to step in uh, you know, step too far and say that we might have done the the largest sampling effort for pathogen presence because um i know they've been doing a lot of work in the klamath mm-hmm. where where sea where serratonova is a problem with the anadromous stocks and stuff but you know to do two pathogens at such a large scale we you know we've we've done something that is potentially very groundbreaking and like i said of you know for the limited utility that the edna gave us to thinking about fish distribution what it did is set this valuable baseline about pathogen distribution mm-hmm. so when um when yeah when we we can put signs up at places where there's an you know there's a known pathogen presence and we, and say you know you before you go f- you're at this creek and before you go to that creek you need to you right. need to change mm-hmm. waders because just like montana and california there's rivers just right next to each other boom 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 mm-hmm. that you could all hit in one day and, and people do and do do that. Yeah. And if you Google, if you go on Google Scholar or I don't know how easy it is to find it, there is research about what mater- waiter materials 
are, are right. can carry the pathogen loads mm-hmm. and and I think those they probably include recommendations about how to treat your waders. Cool. I think we interrupted you when you were about to say but the so the discovery of those pathogens has kind of led you towards what you're going to focus your restoration projects on. Oh yeah, phase 2. It's kind of well, it's a consideration because it's not just pathogens. It's about it's it's pathogens, it's stream temperatures, it's uh mm-hmm. stream uh water qual- quantity as well as quality. Um, so we looked at roads, uh, diversions, stream temperatures. Um, we, 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 we went through this process with the technical group and we asked them, uh, what do you guys think is affecting the fishery? We did that. We asked the same questions of the anglers I interviewed and the, and at the community engagement. And then we just kind of braced ourselves for, for the volley <laughs> of, you know, everybody's opinions about, um, what's Otters. driving fishery quality. Yeah. That came up beavers. Um, you know, uh, the kind of the discrepancies between, um, declining stocking, you know, stocking less fish without um, changing regulations accordingly right uh you know all these things came up but then we we dealt with the data the constraints that the data needed to be you know needed to be available or readily assembled you know ready readily assembled to be used and it had to be of a fairly reliable quality and and it you know if at all possible it needed to be available for this entire area and so we drilled down to some key factors um and that was, I won't get into those too much, except for, I will say that one of the two things that we looked at that were really important was kind of the hydrologic response to climate change. So um, where is water going to be at in the future and when is it going to flow and, and, you know, and then also thermal refugia. So where's this, the cool enough stream temperature is going to be. Right. And so that was, that was part of kind of this, not, we have this branching of, local knowledge, technical expertise, and then these novel approaches. And the climate data was the climate uh, change analysis was made possible with the advent of two um, rigorous models. One that, uh, well, one that deals with climate variables and then Norwest uh, stream temperature model, which is comes out of the Forest Service, the Rocky Mountain Research Station, I think up in the Sawtooth. Um, that they developed for looking at bull trout thermal refugia. And then they've since expanded the pro expanded the model to the Western U S and this is a, this thing is great. They calibrated it with, um, they just drag netted every stream temperature data point they could get for the West. And then they calibrated it. Um, and so, you know, it's something that it's, uh, well, I, sh- I showed it, you know, to the group, the technical advisory group, and, and I said, you know, this might be something we want to look at using for our analysis. And they said, they said, heck yeah, you know, it's better than nothing. <laughs> right. It's better than not knowing where, you know, or not trying to know where stream temperatures are going to be optimal or in the future. So in the instance you're talking about, they actually took the bull trout out of the river and moved them to a different place, Right. Is that what you're referring to? You know, I don't know what management decisions they, yeah. they took, but I, I knew think that they. I think they did. I was, I was, yeah. I was researching. I, I know they are concerned mostly about juveniles, right? Um, and so the way we, the way you do that is you establish that optimal temp- temperature range mm-hmm. for the species. So you know, even for a, a brook trout, water can be too cold to where it's like you only get a few individuals. There's an optimal temperature band where the population, hmm. the, the individuals, and the population thrive. 
And so we did that for each of the trout species. And in particular, we focused on the rainbow and we wanted to see where the habitat moved moving forward in time. Okay. So you applied the model that was originally used for the bull trout yeah. to be species specific for rainbows. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what's then, the so what's the kind of sweet spot for for the trout population because that's always i've i've read 41 to you know 52 degrees and what's the what's the optimal i think i think we for raymond trout we went like um 45 to 65 or something like that mm-hmm. I don't, I don't, that's, to that's be honest, what he's getting at because it's it's a wide range when to be you're honest, looking at all the different species yeah, yeah. And then for brown trout, it was more lenient right. and a little bit warmer. Mm-hmm. And for brook trout, it was a little thinner right. and a little bit hot and a little bit uh, colder temperatures. And and uh, to be honest, I can't remember exactly because I because I did it in Celsius. And I where <laughs> uh, the model comes in Celsius. So. In the end, so um, in the end, I've you know we have this integrative approach with you know local local expertise, um, local knowledge, novel approach analyzing all these factors using this eDNA sampling to establish this baseline for pathogens and then i started stacking up this information to you know to start checking off like okay what watershed units and what rivers should tu be thinking about like where where's where's right. our restoration money going right. to be put to to really effective use so you're looking at the biggest biggest risk units essentially where where i guess bang for buck <laughs> Well, the, yeah, bang for buck, the TU, you know, the TU conservation approach is protect the headwaters, reconnect, um, reconnect the system and, and then to restore, you know, the marginal habitat. And the idea is that if you, those, that kind of approach allows for the sustainability of the fishery. And so, you know, different units, a higher priority unit, like the, um, basically we classified priority as the combination of. Uh, exposure, which is the climate change exposure and resilience, which is how are the conditions currently. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, when we were thinking about climate, we, we are actually, we use conservative estimates because, you know, these are just probable changes or, you know, there's a certain consensus about the probability of what's going on. And, you know, there's observations behind that too. Um, I don't want to get into uh, debating it, but, you know, we're just, you know, we're trying to be cautious because, you know, as T, you know, as a nonprofit, you know, we have to use it. We have to use our funds in a way that it most effectively, um, helps us accomplish our mission, which is, you know, to have cold water fisheries in the future. Hmm. Um, and so we have these units and yeah, they tend to be kind of well correlated with elevation, the areas of the North Fork headwaters off of Lassen up by the park. Mm Mm-hmm. That area is also real good because it's, it's, you know, less roaded. Um, the stream temperature is high. Uh, it's parked, so there's not w- water being diverted from the channel. You mm-hmm. know, the, it, it has the preponderance of factors. And there are a few other areas in the basin that are like that. And so those are, you know, moving forward, those are the areas that we should probably be investing our time and effort uh, in fishery restoration. Awesome. Very cool. What, um, so we talked a little bit about it. You have all these groups working together, including the community, right? Getting together and talking about all these things. What did you see stand out amongst that gathering, um, as far as being favorable, but also pushbacks, right? Um, 
Well, you know, people, people, uh, anglers um, tend to be more forgiving of um, of non-native trout species than resource managers who are tasked with protecting native fish species. Right. And right. so, you know, there was um, so. Don't plant. Uh, somebody might say no more stocking of browns of Lake Amador, Brown mm-hmm. right? And the people are like, "Well, that's that's my livelihood. You know, yeah. I make money off of that." Yeah. So, I mean, those there was, you know, and there were some common um, threads that would occur um, in the community versus the technical advisory board or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a, uh, you know, I tried to you know keep in mind that. TU has a certain mission, right. and that is conserving right. the yeah. native right. cold water. Which I agree with. I, I, yeah. I, you know, I agree with it. Yeah, the, one one thing that I don't understand is, you know, there's there's policy decisions made on on what species are going to be, you know, managed. And so the the prawn trout thing in Elmore is a prime example, right? They said, okay, we're no longer going to, you know, mm-hmm. manufacture this fish and introduce them in the lake. Which I personally like to go after brown trout. So if they're going to do that, if they're going to make that decision, then the regs need to be updated so that it's a zero bag limit on brown trout. That's yeah. just how I feel about it. But I don't know. I would agree. Um, uh, in terms of and and in stocking in general, like if look, let's think about Deer Creek, right? Um, yeah. You know they plant Deer Creek above the falls. Yep. And uh, say they were to st- stop that program. Um, what would happen is that, you know, that put and take fishery, the load of all that take would be, would in turn be displacing onto the wild trout. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that, that, and whether or not there's a lot, I just, now there's probably planting triploids, they're unviable or for spawning with wild fish. But so I agree that, you know, there's probably some adjustments there. I would say that, um, Based on, you know, based on our findings with the eDNA sampling and looking at the historic distribution, I would, I would say that, you know, you might have fewer numbers of brown trout, but, um, uh, I don't think they're going anywhere. It's, you know, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to rid a stream of fish, you know? Right. Yeah. And so, um, if you go down that path, right. You're like, yeah. well, we got to get rid of all the stripers in the and, Sacramento. And they're hardy. Yeah. They're kind of like yeah. stripers, right? Yeah. They're, they're hardy. So we got to get rid of they're all fish. the brunt. Yeah. They're, they're just, fish. they're just great. They're, they're amazing. a great sport fish too. I mean, Jesus, they're just so yeah. fun to catch and stock and all that stuff. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, you know, TU's got a mission and that, and, well, and they're know, doing, they're doing a great job. I was going to actually bring that up because you're, um, and, Cindy, you can enlighten us on this stuff about all the involvement you're getting with the kids out of the classroom and the TU. Do you want to? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the the really fun thing about this, I mean, at least from the chapter standpoint, because we are the Feather River chapter, and again, like I say, this is a piece that came out of a couple of guys that are just stellar fish guys. I mean, amazing people. And Ken and Mike. Yeah. 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 And, and truthfully before this study, we did, we did some little projects and, and we, we have some little, very sweet little kids fishing derbies and things like that. And it was like, kind of, kind of like a little <laughs> sleeper. I mean, it was, it, it was, it was good. Yeah. You know, we were good community people, but right. 
I guess from my standpoint, having been doing this for such a long time, and it's like really like I'm not some super angler, but I am definitely a cheerleader. I mean, I love doing this. Is God, it just really upped it for our chapter to really be going out there and looking at stuff from more a scientific perspective as opposed to just being like, you know, tossing a line and baiting a hook. Well, "Mm." it goes back to what you said in the beginning, you know, people going out and trying to do some restoration, but not following up with any you know, backing it up with any data or coming back to see if that restoration had, had done anything. So. Yeah. Well, and, and again, we, we have for a small chapter, we are a very small chapter in the big scheme of things. Like I think um, our total membership in, in our local chapter is just short of 200 people. And again, it's, it's a numbers game, like all things mm-hmm. like it's 200 members. And again, there's like, 20 of us that do stuff, you know, really. Yeah. And and we'd love to come down here to Chico and mix it up with you guys. We The Feather River chapter wants in down here. So open the doors, okay? <laughs> open the doors. But again, so what we're, we're doing, you know, the other program that we have that's really, actually really fun is this Trout and Classroom program that I think in a lot of places has become salmon in the classroom. But again, it's a really fun thing exposing kids to um, – fishing, fishery, the watershed concept, mm-hmm. the whole macroinvertebrate piece. I mean, there's so much of it that, you know, one of the things I've always said is like, think about like all the different ways you could come to the center. Like you could come, you can be a fisherman or you can be a scientist or you can be mm-hmm. entomologist. I mean, there's a lot of ways sure. to get into this. It's really fun. It's a very interesting thing. So again, when you're doing these kids projects, it's like, okay, you kind of look at them and scruff them up a little bit and say, hey, what are you? like to do yeah. and they're like oh, oh you know <laughs> so it's really fun i think that right now we're, we're we're prepping up we're priming up for our um classroom program which is really based around um that california department of fish and wildlife um trial classroom program and and what that is is they we we put in a aquarium there's a little classroom <clears throat> curriculum that we work with the teachers and try to introduce kids to stuff like through this um uh you know egg rearing program Mm -hmm. and then what we've really kind of been doing pumping it up lately is some casting with the kids we've been doing some fly time with the kids Uh, one of the classrooms over in westwood i think the guy's a high school teacher he's like oh do you have somebody could come and do some dissection for us i'm like i think we do you know so i mean it it really can be anything like trap the classroom could be anything a teacher asks for so it it can be that's great we need more kids out there doing that kind of stuff yeah yeah well because I, what we say is that's the way you bring more people into the loop of conservation because, mm-hmm. truthfully, TU is a conservation organization. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, being an angler is another way into the center, but, um, yeah. you know, w- what we're really trying to do is make sure, truthfully, that there are uh, fishing opportunities for kids now and for their children. Yep. I mean, yeah. this Future is a long term picture. Yeah. yeah. Um, Nick and I have talked about fly fishing or, and, and, you know, just angling in general, sport fishing in general, I think is kind of like the gateway drug to become a conservationist in a lot Kinda. of ways. Yeah. yeah. It's kind of interesting, so, you know. Yeah. I mean, at first, I think. You know, uh, you know, we come from kind of that country thing, and so it's a little different. Like lots of times, where you see like empty beer cans and, and cigarette butts, and then it's mm-hmm. very interesting as you start to like watch and teach people. It's like, oh, we don't do that anymore. We don't do that anymore because right. this is our place. This is my secret yeah. stash, and you know, that's the other thing that I like to tell kids is like, if you find something really cool, 
don't share it with everybody. I think that um, you know, the littering still happens. I think what's that I think that there's another generation coming in though that's actually picking up <laughs> the litter yeah. when they walk yeah. out. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So Yeah, some of the other activities, um, we we also help out with some fisheries monitoring with DWR and okay. DFW in the basin on Indian Creek. Um, as a group, we're going to go fish pyramid later in the month. Cool. Oh, cool. Um, That'll be a really fun trip. And, uh, you know, there's, there's some other things, but like, I'm kind of like this, um, poster child for the changing role of like organizations like TU and like, and Caltrout where, you know, we're taking on, um, le- leadership roles in scientific initiatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and one of the, Cindy talked about it's a numbers game and we're, you know, our chapter is based in, you know, we usually meet in a pretty rural area and our membership's not huge, but a lot of it has to do with not how many members you have, but what are their skill sets and how active right. are they in, involved? Like, and connecting the right people together. Mm-hmm. And so, um, one of the things, you know, I would say about, uh, the work that we've been doing on this assessment is that we've assembled all this knowledge that is going to, you know, that is, hopefully going to be powerful leverage for finding funds. Um, and, and, you know, and hopefully if, you know, that it's a, it turns out to be sound, these projections are sound and, and, you know, all of it will be ground truth as we look, get out on the ground and start looking for legit on the ground projects, you know, to start putting some shovels in the ground and planting willows and, and doing the working on roads and, and fish passage and stuff. Fish passage. Um, but you know, so we have, you know, we've built this, this set of this knowledge base, but we're going to also need, you know, your, the capacity and, and energy, um, to really see it through, um, and see other organizations follow, right? Yeah. Potentially pick up what you're, what you're putting down and and use that in in their area. Yeah. I'd love to see, you know, TU already has a kind of a, an index for conservation success, um, and, and I think that our, this is kind of a different animal, but it's a similar, it, you know, we had similar motivations and we looked at similar parameters mm-hmm. that a lot of the other to you, uh, work has been done on like native cutthroats and, and, and red bands and, you know, anadromous stocks and yeah. stuff like that. Um, no, it's all fantastic. You guys, um, I, I've learned so much for you guys coming in today I, I super appreciate it i'd love to see like tu chapters you know this is you know if you have the information available you could translate this model it's replicable right i'd invite them to assemble their own historic distribution records yeah. and yeah. convene their own technical yeah. advisory panels uh, <laughs> right that was the most intensive part but man is it it's been a rewarding experience for me personally and i hope it's a you know a I hope it's rewarding for the chapter and and absolutely, absolutely. future fishermen of the north state. So, of the north state. Are we wrapping? Okay. So can can you guys uh, talk about where we can find you guys online? So this is the segment where we you can plug plug the plug. <clears throat> so we have a website, you know, Feather River Tu FRTU. Dot org, I think is what it is. And then there's also, we are an affiliate of the, the state program, which um, is 13 chapters throughout the state. So that's Trout Unlimited California. And again, Trout Unlimited is actually a national conver- conservation organization. So again, there's mm-hmm. sort of like the giant umbrella, then there's the state umbrella, then there's down to this little chapter piece. And it's sort of interesting because what I've really seen is that each chapter <coughs> does 
different, has different ways to make things happen. So again, you can look us up online. You can call Vincent. You could call me. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're everywhere. There's TU everywhere. Have a meeting down at Sierra Nevada and, yeah. and Chico. And, yeah. Uh, Let's do it. All right. Let's do it cool. down here. Sounds good. Well, thank you guys very much for coming on the show. We, we really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your work doing this. It helps to get the word out. Yes. We're trying to talk to as many people as we can. Speaking of which, of all you guys listening, please, uh, you have a plug that you want to throw in? I think you're going to do it. So I, I <laughs> yeah. don't wanna... Just get online or on, on, our, on your app and just give us a rating, give us a review. Uh, it really helps out a lot. And um, if you have any ideas or thoughts um, for the show, um, just go to our website. Podcast.barbless.co. And also, uh, if you want to subscribe to the newsletter that we're, we send each month, that'd be good, too. Uh, it, it's at that URL um, all the way at the bottom in the footer. You'll see a little sign-up form. And then last but not least, we, uh, we've been working pretty hard on a leaders website, leaders.barbless.co. Um, we added the ability to use your Google account, Facebook, or your standard username and, and password to get in and create an account now. So we're making it a lot easier. Which is really uh, cool to check out new leaders, advanced leaders, if you're a beginner or if you're an advanced too. angler, whatever. It's, it's a great platform to go check out yeah. some different cocktails of leaders. Cool, cool. That, so, I think that's it. And get out and go do some fishing and pick up a yeah. can or cigarette butt here and, and there. Bleach your waders. And bleach your waders. <laughs> Just go have fun. Go have fun, exactly. Okay. Thanks, Cindy. Thanks, Vincent. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, Fish Bio and Amped Up Build. Fish Bio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring, and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vienchen, Laos, Fish Bio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com. And Amp.Build. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.Build.